Hello and welcome back to another episode of FDU. I'm your host, Rob. I'm Ken. And we're here to take you back to school. Hello and welcome back to another episode of FDU. It's been a while since we've been recording this one. Had a little bit of a vacation, much needed vacation. But uh, we mentioned in a couple Facebook posts that we were going to be bringing on a new host. And we have him here today. His name's Ken. Uh, Ken, tell us a little about yourself, your history in the fire service, and you know any kind of special certifications you might hold or anything like that. Hello, I'm a firefighter paramedic officer. I've been in the fire service now for 24 years. I work in an apartment along East Coast, South Florida, and uh, I do enjoy my job and definitely see a lot and continue to see a lot. And every day I come to work, there's something new. Don't ever expect the same day you show up. That's true. And I always said, like, we could probably write volumes of books on what we've seen and people wouldn't believe it. Like myself, Ken's been in the fire service for a long time. I've known him for a while, too. Him and I teach together quite a bit. And I figured he brings a lot to the table because he is a station officer. So he really, with today's topic, can shed a lot of light on from his point of view as an officer and even just as a firefighter, too, with nozzles. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be focusing on the smooth bore and the fog nozzle. And I know there are a lot of people out there that are one or the other, and that's how they run their show, which is fine. But we're going to talk about the pros and cons to both and the how applicable they are to certain situations because every nozzle on the truck, whether you're a smoothbore person only or a fog, or you like using both depending on the situation, every nozzle on the truck has its place. Just like every type of appliance or forceful entry tool has its place. And they're on the truck for a reason. Same thing with the different nozzles we have. So we're going to be getting into a couple things. And it's a highly debated issue. Some people will say, you know, the fog versus the fog or the smoothbore versus the fog nozzle. But we're not going to be making a debate today. We're just going to be shedding light on our experience with both nozzles and the applicability of them. And when you would want to use one over the other. And if you don't feel that way, then, I mean, obviously, we're not here to have, change how you do your tactics and how you run your show at your department. It's just strictly an educational episode today. And maybe we can shed some light on some different things that aren't normally really thought about in the heat of the battle with what nozzle is better for what. So what do you think on that, Ken? Yeah, there's definitely somewhat of a debate where I work. I have some guys who enjoy the smooth bore, and then there's individuals that prefer the fog nozzle. I am one of those I am one of those individuals. I think you just have more quote unquote options when fighting fire with a fog nozzle compared to a smooth bore. Smooth bore you're really limited to fire stream where with fog nozzle you have a wide pattern, medium sized pattern and then almost a, a solid solid pattern with a fog nozzle plus you have the capability of blowing foam through a fog nozzle where compared to a smooth bore. So it's definitely a debate a lot of people speak about. I'm just more partial to fog nozzles more than anything. I think they just, overall, they just work better in the majority of the situations. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I lean more towards the fog just because of the versatility of it, especially, you know, being a hazmat tech and, and I'm one of those chemistry nerds and all that. So I do like my hazmat, but I'm big on the, like Ken just said about the application of foam and getting a nice foam blanket over any kind of vapors that are coming off a of flammable liquid because mainly it's to protect us and keep everything suppressed with the vapors. Unfortunately, the smoothbore, and, and again, the smoothbore has its place, and I've used the smoothbore on solid waste fires, mulch fires, um, mainly in the solid waste fires where it was actually embedded in mounds and mounds of recyclables and trash. And a long time ago, actually when I first was promoted to a driver engineer, we got called out on a second alarm to a solid waste fire down south it was, it was a bear. They actually were to the point where we had smoothboards to try to penetrate those mounds, but we actually had the, you know, we had a, a forklift operator pulling apart the mound so we can get to it because it was so deep-seated. But the, the smoothboard, that was an absolute perfect fire for that smoothbore nozzle because we did get the penetration, we did get the reach, and it was just a, a really, you know, dirty fire because it was a dump, basically, but it was in one of the recycling hangars. And it was, it was a nightmare, but we got it done, and, and it was... Uh, a mutual aid fire too. We had three different departments there, but it was it was a very well run, and everybody's using smoothbores and got the job done. So we're not, you know, obviously people are going to have your own opinion on what nozzle is better than the other. Our thing is, if you have nothing but smoothbores on every hose line, and Ken, I'm sure you can agree with me on this. If you have those nozzles on every single line you have, then I think you're selling yourself short. 
because even if you want to have majority of your lines with a smooth bore or fog, whatever, whatever nozzle, you still want to have that other line with the opposite nozzle, just in case, because the time of changing out the nozzle when you first get on scene, you're like, oh crap, I need a fog nozzle or, oh, I need a smooth bore, but everything's the other nozzle. Now is not the time to be changing it out. What do you think on that? No, I agree. My agency, we have majority of this are smaller attack lines with a fog nozzle, and then our larger lines are already pre-connected with a smooth bore. Then our master streams on top, our deck guns are all smooth boring. Smooth bore is for distance and quote-unquote penetration, more of like a surround and drown type atmosphere or situation where interior, your small residential structures, whatnot. We're just using a fog pattern, get in there, quick knockdowns, and Actually, it almost seems like sometimes you can eliminate some internal damage by using a, a fog nozzle compared to a smooth bore because you can just, just cover less or just be able to get the fire out quickly and not cause a lot of water damage inside the house compared to with a large uh, nozzle that's just pumping a lot of water into the house. We Sometimes we try to avoid that, or we want to avoid that. Yeah, and that's one of the um, <clears throat> priorities is property conservation. I know it's the third priority on the list, but property conservation is key here. Well, we got to think too. Let's look a little bit at the history of nozzles. Like back in the old days, the only nozzle that was really available in the prior to the 1800s was a smoothbore. Because one, you got to think it's a pretty easy piece of metal to mold and and forge, and there's not a lot of moving parts. And that was the the goal was to not have many moving parts prior 1800s, like we're talking about, to basically get water and you have to think too, back then, obviously, the PPE that we wear now compared to then, they didn't have that PPE back then. They didn't have SCBA. So why not have a nozzle like a smoothbore that can flow basically a solid stream of water, keep you away from it because you don't have the PPE on, keep you away from the heat as much as possible, get the penetration because you're trying to protect yourself. Back in the old days, that was the nozzle of choice because of the lack of PPE or the PPE not being as, as great as it is now. So... That's a little bit of why the smoothbore became what it is. Then let's fast forward to 1863, around that time, when the fog nozzle first hit the uh, the industry. And they had a straight stream fog nozzle that came out in 1863. So yeah, these nozzles are not, they're not young. They've been around for a long time. It's just the versatility uh, and the idea because mm-hmm. of behind the fog nozzle back in the 1800s was narrow versus wide, but let's introduce more droplets of water because I think people are looking at the theory of we get steam conversion. That seems to be darkening down the fires pretty quick. So hence why the fog nozzle kind of made its way on the scene. No, I I agree. Again, uh, a lot of these nozzles were made out of uh, necessity. And I guess since you introduced two nozzles at the same time back in the 1860s, the debate began then and it's ongoing since then. Yep. And I don't think it's... uh, I don't ever foresee it ever ending in my career or my life, at least. I think it'll be the uh, the thing that goes on forever until the fire service burns out. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> most likely. But yeah, and and again, they have their place. And like Ken said, necessity. They were created out of necessity. Now, if we start going into hydraulic sub nozzles, obviously, if you're a driver and an officer, you should know, and and a firefighter too. I'm not discounting that. I'm saying everybody on the truck at the station should know what capability is that nozzle, whether it's a fog or a smoothbore. Obviously, we have the new low-pressure fogs that are out there. The um, chief nozzles are pretty common on the market, and we're getting 150 GPM out of them at 50 PSI nozzle pressure. So when we do our calculations as a driver, we want to make sure... And, and you know what? When I first became a driver, we had the automatic nozzle. Remember them? Yes. And they had that spring, and the theory was the... Um, the pressure and the, and the pump pressure was to activate that spring and reduce the nozzle reaction, which that never happened. The one thing, too, to remember is now that we have the – and when I first was going through hydraulics and, and pump operation class, I had to do the C times Q squared times L formula. And if you're not familiar with that, C stands for coefficient times the Q squared, which was the gallons, and then times L, which was length of hose. And that factored in your friction loss, your gallons, and the coefficient of the hose. But now we have such great hose that are coming out, the friction loss is almost like nil. And a lot of departments are actually doing their own pump discharge pressures. So you just have to know if it's attack line one on the pump panel, you pull it and you put it up to 110 or whatever the pressure is that they figured out. So they've really taken the whole mathematical 
thought process out in the moment in time at that fire for the drivers. A lot, of, a lot, yeah, a lot of the newer engines are just they're preset. Basically, hit a couple buttons and pumps the pressure for you, and then we mm -hmm. just adjust as uh, according with titrate to titrate to effect. Yeah, that was that was the greatest line I ever heard in medical school: titrate <laughs> to effect for medications. <laughs> but yeah. and, and a buddy of mine, um, him and I have had a debate. Like, well, not really a debate. Him and I are in agreement mm -hmm. with it. But I think, yeah, it's very simple because we want to take the the thinking out of the heat of the battle because that's when mistakes are going to be made, especially with adrenaline rushes or you have a new person that's newly promoted to a driver or a new firefighter that might be upgrading to a driver. Who knows? However, the department you work for runs, that's reality. And we were saying that with all this going on and the way schools are teaching now that they're taking the driver engineer, the engineer out of it. They're making drivers, which in turn are just you know, lever pullers. Yeah, that's just the evolution, I guess, of the fire fire service. I mean, um, I'm sure engines are designed and manufactured a lot different now than 30, 35, 40 years ago because the majority of the fire service is also getting more, more involved with EMS. And if you look at the new engines that are out or have been out for however long, there's always backboard storage, EMS storage, et cetera, et cetera. So they're really serving two purposes now than they were in the past. Uh, they're mm -hmm. really a first response vehicle for EMS and then... Uh, double as a fire truck compared to a lot of departments, you know, 35, 40 plus years ago, they were strictly just a fire truck. So right. that's evolving. And as that evolves, so does the position of the engineer. I think it's just going to be a continuous trend and the trucks are going to probably become as simplified as possible when it comes to pumping lines to yeah, make it as easy as possible for everybody. I agree on that because um, it's already happening, but not to digress from the actual topic of nozzles on this episode, but if, if you're a driver or you're, you're, Goal is to become a driver in your department, whether it's next year, two months from now, or 15 years from now. Just remember, when you do any kind of apparatus training or the hydraulics class, that it, well, what I went through was a week of just math before you could go into the apparatus class, which was driving the truck, setting it up, doing your pump pressures and all that, multiple lines flowing. Just focus on the math because that's what you're going to have to fall back on because you might get that one truck that's still in the fleet that's a, a spare truck and it hasn't been flowed properly. And there's no preset button to hit for whatever line you're pulling. So just know your math because, yeah, you can do quick water. So whatever pressure your nozzle is. So, for example, we were talking about the uh, fog nozzle, low pressure fog, 150 GPM at 50. Well, to get water to the nozzle to the attack team so they can start pushing on the fire or do a transitional attack. That's going to be a future episode, by the way. I want to know oh, your opinion okay. on indirect and transitional attacks. Okay, so okay. we're not going to dive into that right now. I can give the person 50 PSI on the pump panel quick water, and then I can do my math formula with my dry erase marker or my China marker that I used to carry for, you know, I bought it from Home Depot in the tile section, and I would do it real quick, set my actual official pressure for that line, and our smoothbore nozzles would be at 110 PSI. That's what I'd flow at. And then our low-pressure fog nozzles, after all said and done with all the calculations and friction loss put in there, I was flowing that at about 105 so very close in proximity, but obviously the smoothbore, I was getting 180 GPM out of it because it was a 15, 16 smoothbore tip. But again, I would get the quick water and then I would dial in my mathematical equation to get them the full on pump pressure. That's one thing you got to fall back on. Don't, don't always rely on that rule, you know, set it and forget it kind of mentality on the pump panel. You got to know your, your math too, because that makes you an engineer. And if you're having problems with it and you're not getting the flow from the nozzle or the pump. You need to know how to troubleshoot it right then and there, okay? Hopefully, you have a pretty good um, response for your, your second do engine after they give you water. And that way, you can kind of, if you're having a, a pump failure or something's going on, you can bounce ideas off the other engineer and go from there and get it solved. I mean, have you ever had that? Somewhat. I didn't do a lot of the hydraulic portion or driver engineer throughout my career, but a lot of the engineers, they really earn their money on the bigger calls because one line is really simple, just a quick knockdown, mm -hmm. one bedroom one single room contents type fire it's over done with in a matter of minutes but when you start having uh say multiple lines flowing and really pumping that's when uh, you need to know what you're doing because things get pretty uh, intense rather fast so that's when the drivers really start to earn their money and we always joke about them they just kind of sit there and pull lever levers and look pretty but ultimately <laughs> You know, they're they're, they have a huge responsibility for the guys that are on the inside because they're supplying the water. And the last thing we, we want is any interruption of water. That's ultimately our lifeline. So mm -hmm. 
yeah, they do definitely need to know what they're doing and how to do quick math and get water and proper pump pressures and whatnot. And, and then you don't want the guys overshooting where there's so much pressure on the line, you can't control the line. And so there, there's definitely mathematics involved. And when we work with our new guys, they do a fair amount of book work before they actually do practical practicality stuff with the engine and the pumps and the hoses and mm-hmm. fire streams. It's, it's a little bit of, um, I say a little bit, it's a fair amount of math, know the formulas and, and whatnot. And then we move into actually pumping the trucks. That's good. That's good that you guys crawl, walk, run kind of theory, which I'm huge on. But again, going back to our nozzles, as an engineer, as a firefighter, as an officer, heck, as a chief that's on scene. Yeah, everybody has their own job and their objectives for each job, but you still need to know what's going on here. Because as an officer, and you can attest to this, I know firsthand, you know that if this isn't working, well, one, you should have a backup line pulled. But what if we're making an attack and we're doing a push on this fire and just say it's a pretty large residential, a McMansion, we'll say, you know? So technically that's basically like a commercial structure fire is what that should be toned out to, at least here in Florida. And that's like a 5,000 to 15,000 square foot house. But if you're making a push with a smoothbore on that, and then all of a sudden you're like, this isn't working, but your backup line's a fog nozzle, well, heck, you can bring them both in. Don't cross the streams if you get that reference, what movie that's from. But you can switch out your attack line, make that the backup if the fog nozzle is doing a better job. And that was the original backup line. Now that's your primary attack line. I mean, have you ever thought to have to do that? or we? Well, we've actually been, you know, been on fires where we're using one type of nozzle. It's not working, and we'll switch it or vice versa. So. I always like to say to my guys is, you know, keep your options open and use your tools. Use everything at our disposal. And mm-hmm. Don't ever put all your, you know, going with all these little sayings, but uh, don't ever put all your eggs in one basket. So, yeah, we that's why we carry this stuff on the truck. It's not that, you know, every truck we carry carries strictly fog nozzles. No, we carry a combination of uh, fog nozzles and solid streams. And if one thing isn't getting the job done, well, then we go to, go to what we have to get the job done. So mm-hmm. you have to be fluid. And... Every situation is going to present itself differently, and you kind of let, let the situation maybe dictate what's going on, and you react to that situation. But yeah, don't be in the mindset of oh, only this is going to work or this type of nozzle because this is what they use here or wherever. It's we use what we have, and there's a reason we carry multiple nozzles and, and different sizes of line on the truck for different types of situations. So don't get caught up in only one thing is going to work. There's numerous ways to skin a cat. Yeah. And if we look at the smoothbore nozzle pros and kind of talk about the cons as well, just a couple notes I have listed here is one, smoothbore nozzles are the lowest cost nozzle. There's not a lot of moving parts. I mean, we have a bale on it. We have a ball valve in there, but we really don't have much else going on there. There's not a lot of working, you know, contraptions inside, no spring, none of that. The um, multiple sizes you have, whether you're working with a inch and a quarter, inch and a half, a one inch tip. And then you get into your, your master stream tips, which obviously you're, you're flowing a lot of water, but you can change out depending on what you need. So as long as you have a pretty secure water supply, or if you're out in like a rural area and you have to do a, a relay pump off of a, a drafting type evolution with a, with a tender and a tender obviously can be, you know, over a thousand gallons up to 3000. What do you, what is um, the common one that you see around here? We just run a couple of tankers that are ranging about 1,500 to upwards of 5,000. It depends where in the okay. area that you're going to have a response. Yeah, so you're going to have that possible drafting and that relay and uh, the water shuttling type situation. So again, if it, depending on where you're at, you might need a ton of water because you have a huge commercial building, a warehouse, for example, that's out in the middle of nowhere. But a lot of times you have to think too, when you have those warehouses out in the middle of nowhere away from like the population, as long as you've done a tax survey on it, what do they have in there? Because why do they have to be so far away? Maybe because the land is cheap and they have a lot of area to grow if they expand more with that company. But a lot of times from what I've seen, they have some nasty stuff in there. So you're not just dealing with your bread and butter warehouse fire. You're dealing with a warehouse hazmat fire because of whatever they're manufacturing. They can't be close to a population. So again, you might need a lot of water and there's where that foam comes in. You might have to break away your smoothbore um, master stream tip and put on your master stream fog nozzle just to get a nice foam blanket. It just depends on the application and what's going on here. So again, hopefully you've tax surveyed some of your um, larger warehouses. But going back to the smoothbore pros is obviously we've already talked about it. We, we beat it to death here. It's got reach and it's got penetration depending on what you're using. You can obviously change out and do your varying of what GPM you want to use at that moment in time. 
One thing too that I want to run by you as well, Ken, is smooth boards. Obviously, as long as you don't have a stream straightener, if there's anything in the line, it can pass the debris through rocks, pebbles, anything like yes. that. And I'm concerned more with that when we're starting to deal with high rise fire because if it's an older building or the standpipes aren't maintained as well or people jam things in there because the caps are removed off the standpipe and next you know you're next you know you have a big rock that comes through so that's why i'm kind of a more of a fan with smooth bores on high rises yeah our, our high rise packs actually carry uh smooth bore and another reason for that is we have to extend the line we just shut down the smooth bore take off the tip and connect a section or sections of hose to it mm-hmm. basically operates as a single inline gate and you know, that's that's an advantage in that type of setting for a smooth bore that we have that. That's so good. that's really the, the one of the main reasons we care. Another reason, again, is distance because sometimes these high rises are you're connected to standpipe, but that standpipe can be on one end of the condo and you have to go 150 feet to where the where the fire is at because there's only one standpipe in that particular condo, depending on its age or whatnot. So you need you need the distance. So that's uh, that's basically our rationale why we're carrying our high-rise packs with a smooth bore. And I think that's uh, that's a pretty good rationale. It, it gives us the op- It helps us out I mean, if we get uh, caught up in a situation where we're having trouble reaching the fire or we need to extend hose line, et cetera, et cetera. So. I think that's a great you know option to have, like a plan B, like you said. And not to mention, too, if you're you're bringing that deuce and a half hose line up with the smooth bore, and you got to think, too, the condos here in Florida obviously are along the water because why else would you want to live in a condo in Florida? You want to live on the water. But you got that wind-driven aspect of it, too. And if we have that deuce and a half line with that, whatever, one inch or inch and a quarter or inch and a half smooth bore tip, we want to make sure we're dropping a ton of GPM because if that's a wind-driven fire, then we need to make sure we're putting out, you know, G- GPMs put out BTUs. I'm sure some of you have heard that saying. This is one of those situations where that is the truth because of the wind-driven fire. But the uh, backup plan, like Ken said, is, and then I'm sure you've probably uh, got that option when you're dealing with, like, just say a dock light for a yacht fire or yeah, something, you yeah. know, at the marinas. Normally, something like that, how comes a high-rise pack? Just cause and that's smart. Where the, where the, ship, where the boats are moored up on the docks it's, it's a far distance normally yeah and that that's that's a great thing and, and when um i was a driver we we did the same thing we we you know called it a dock lay for short but i mean same concept it was the high-rise pack that came out and uh, we could hook up a gated y to it and we could you know e- either hit it with a inch and three quarter from a small boat or we could break out the deuce and a half and put a um two and a half inch gated y on it and go from there uh big fire big water kind of situation so but Let's switch gears and talk a little more about the fog nozzle, okay? And we'll go into a couple other things about nozzles and, and some other things we've noticed and hose management a little bit with that with nozzles and, and whatnot. But with the fog nozzle, a couple other things that I kind of brought to the episode today, just some stuff I was kind of researching. One thing to remember is the fog nozzle has been used for since the 1860s, okay? It's, that's when it kind of first got on the scene, the new kid on the block, but it's been around for well over 150 years. And one thing to consider, too, is that the European countries in the 20s and the 30s were actually using fog nozzles before it really became popular here in the U.S. But the thing that made it pretty common practice was the, uh, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard for shipboard firefighting. And you were in the service, right? I was, yes. Okay, so you probably had to get trained on shipboard firefighting as well. and Somewhat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I'm sure the fog nozzle was the common nozzle on the ship, right? Yeah, more of a deluge type mm-hmm. setting is what they normally even even ba- any basically quote unquote large sprinkler. Okay, yeah. So the theory again was introducing thousands of water droplets in a very short period of time to create steam conversion. And I'm sure at that point, if you had anything like on for shipboard firefighting, it was more of an indirect attack with the fog nozzles, and it was prevalent in World War II, and that's where it kind of like came out of World War II from the Navy and the Coast Guard. And why it became common practice in the fire service. Because, again, they're looking at it like, wait a minute. We're spraying a bunch of droplets of water from this, like Ken said, this large sprinkler head. And then we're shutting the bulkhead door and letting it steam down. Yes. So, And from what I understand, too, is that actually a lot of the stuff during World War II, they had a lot of fuel fires. So by spreading out the water droplets, they weren't just pushing water and pushing that fuel fire all over the place they could use the droplets of water to keep better control on it so mm-hmm. um you know that's probably one of the advantages of a fog nozzle compared to a solid stream you can control 
control the amount of water on what you're putting on the fire, the what you're putting water on, you have more control over that compared to solid stream because there's no choice of a solid stream compared to a fog pattern or a fog nozzle. Right. Um, and one thing, too, um, I found interesting when I was doing the research for this episode. In 1950, a guy named Chief Lloyd Lehman from Parkersburg, West Virginia, he actually wrote a paper and presented it at FDIC in Memphis, Tennessee in 1950. Um, he titled the paper, and he, I believe he wrote it for fire engineering as well, Little Drops of Water. And this is that fog nozzle stance. This is that theory from World War II with steam conversion, introducing more surface area, that water coming out of the nozzle, whether it's a wide or a narrow fog, and steaming down the fire. And he made it this article and made it applicable to urban firefighting. And that's where, you know, the fog nozzle, I believe, was really starting to catch on. And, you know, again, it has a lot of moving parts compared to a smoothbore, but the moving parts are a necessity to break up the water to create that steam conversion comparably. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a smoothbore nozzle and you're doing the TZO pattern to introduce surface area of the water in that pattern, the TZO pattern, you're essentially doing the same kind of concept because you're whipping the nozzle around in that pattern and you're creating the droplets. But why? I mean, that can be tiring, you know, especially if you're you're in there for a while, you've made a push down a hallway or you got a, you got a hoarder house mm-hmm. and you're trying to get around all the debris and, and the garbage that they, they store. And then now you have to work this nozzle in that pattern to make up for not having a fog. If you're if you're working a smoothbore, is what I'm getting at. So again, it just it can be cumbersome, especially if you've worked your butt off to get to the seat of the fire, and now you have to do this, and you're like, oh, well, my arms are already shot from crawling on the floor here and pushing things around just so I can make access to this fire. And now here I am. Now I have to do this. Okay, but again, that's I guess what separates you know men from the boys yeah, <laughs> but, you said it. <laughs> yeah i did i might have to edit that out <laughs> i don't want to offend anybody um but no i mean uh, what's your take on the patterns if we're dealing with a smooth board compared to a fog i mean there are no patterns you have one pattern that's it i yeah. mean that's all you have it's so again you're you're really limited for i think interior type stuff with a smooth board or fog mm-hmm. uh, fog nozzle you you can go wide pattern, small pattern. I just think if it's small hallway, you could almost go wide enough pattern to start wetting stuff down and and walking down the hallway and just covering more ground than mm-hmm. than uh, a solid stream. But then again, people like bouncing it off the ceilings or doing the X Y Z pattern. So again, it's preference, but I'm just partial to a fog nozzle. I think you just have more more things at your disposal, more right. ways of fighting fire, at least for interior type stuff things along those lines yeah uh, bigger fires against your underground type structures or scenes you probably do need a uh, a smooth board but interior firefighting i prefer fog pattern. yeah and now don't get me wrong i i know ken you've probably done it too and i know i have too from experience i've actually done an interior attack with a fog and i've done an interior attack with a smooth bore and i always look at it as what's the problem here why are we at this call something's burning. There's a mm-hmm. fire in a house and we want to either protect the rest of the house or or prevent the fire from getting into a building if it's burning on the outside of the house. But the point is, you put the fire out, you put the problem out. So, but I've done a push on fires, residential fires and commercial fires with both nozzles and the end result is the fire does go out. But stuff on the red stuff. Yeah, but the um, thing is though, we're just trying to like kind of bring attention to the fact that before you kind of maybe work harder than you need to on a fire tactically look at it as an officer or even a firefighter or a driver even because i've made recommendations to the officer like hey i'm going to pull this line because i think we need to do this this and this and the officer looked at it and like yeah no you're right go ahead and pull that line that's perfect get that nozzle out um so what's going to make the job easier for us to put the fire out and put the problem out and that's what we're kind of making you know this this episode about the topic at hand here yeah, the, so. the fog nozzle, you know, left for life, I think, is a little bit safer nozzle to mm-hmm. use in there. It gives you some protection if there's any kind of flashover or something. At least you have some True. kind of a chance. You can give yourself maybe a fighting chance, some, like a water curtains type thing if you go as wide as you can on that. And then if you need to push smoke out of the house or a certain room, you can, you can use a fog nozzle. And then um, really, I think maybe in some cases of overhaul, the fog nozzle works a little better because you're not putting a lot of water. You're just droplets here and there on things that are still smoldering or whatnot, where a solid stream, it's a little hard to uh, do some overhaul on a solid stream nozzle compared to a 
fog nozzle. So it's almost, you know, it's a universal nozzle. So once it's in there, it's in there. You're not switching nozzles and stuff. Mm -hmm. But again, it's everybody has their own opinion on, on the whole matter. Yeah. And again, just to reiterate, we're not here to say one's better than the other. We're just here to say, well, we have our personal preference and that's what we're kind of talking about. But we're also trying to bring the educational aspect out of just if you prefer one nozzle, just be smart on how to use it. Um, just be smart on when to use it. Don't always just say, well, this is what I've always done. So I'm just going to keep doing what I know. I mean, at that point, I mean, you might be kind of selling yourself short when you should have pulled the opposite nozzle for that job at hand. So know how again, to use both of them. yeah, just like, I mean, I know we're going to talk about real quick EMS here. Those of you that are paramedics, the Miller and the Macintosh blade. I got really proficient at both. I prefer a Mac, more curved blade. But if that fails, I can go to the Miller and be comfortable using that. Same kind of concept here. I know this is not an EMS podcast, but <laughs> unfortunately, so that's... we already talked about it. With <laughs> I know. It, fire trucks. It come, I know. You were like, oh, we got EMS compartments. I'm like, oh, why did you say that? <laughs> People are like, we probably lost half the listeners. There's no escaping it. <laughs> no. And... Um, a buddy of mine who uh, I've known for a long time, him and I always say, you know, like people like, oh, I only became a paramedic just to be hired at the fire department. I hate being a paramedic. And it's like, so you're crappy at 85% of your job then? I'm confused uh, here. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's the numbers here. The EMS yeah. calls, especially down here because we have to be um, dual certified down here in Florida. If you want to get a pretty good job at a good department, you got to be a firefighter and a paramedic, unfortunately. Um, and, and you know what, though? That's what pays the bills, though. EMS pays the bills. And Very true. if you're one of those that, like, just turn off the EMS, even though you're a medic or an EMT, and you're just like, I hate it, I hate it, but you got to embrace it. That's the population's getting older. They're living longer. They're getting sicker. And who do you think they're going to call? They're not calling Uber. They call 911 Uber, and that's us. So it's, it's good. You know what? This is a fire department podcast. And, yes, we will – encompass every little topic and part of the fire department and we do talk about ems that'll be future episodes and we'll keep those ones brief i promise but um we we're going to talk about it because part of this podcast the fdu is fire ems hazmat tech rescue you name it everything's on the table subject wise for this podcast it's not just going to be strictly fire it's everything under the uh, sun here but uh again I actually like EMS. I embrace it and I try to be up to date on everything, but I also try to be up to date everything on the fire department side too. Fire tactics, hydraulics, everything like that. So, but let's head back to the, um, the nozzles here. One thing we talked about, Ken and I talked about it before we started recording is the pistol grip or no pistol grip talk. And that's another debate too. And I'm a proponent of no pistol grip. Reason is and I'm sure some of you have turned it off because you like the pistol grip, but no, no, hear me out though. Hear me out is I feel that it creates bad hose management because you have that grip and you're holding it. And next thing you know, the nozzles under your arm or at your hip. And how are you going to be able to abruptly turn the nozzle or the hose if the fire gets behind you or if you have to back out, you know what I mean? So I feel that it kind of creates some bad habits with hose management. And I know that you're a proponent of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm more of a pistol grip kind of person. At least on the smaller lines, I just think, because um, they say, you know, fast attack, I think you can just maneuver faster with it. And I think lots of times it's only one person on a hose line and you maybe have some better control of it. On the bigger lines, pistol grip, no pistol grip doesn't really matter. Um, probably no pistol grip on a, on a bigger line, but a small attack line, I just, I just like it. It's more comfortable and feel like you can cover more ground with it than say a non-pistol grip but again it's a matter of opinion and everybody <laughs> has their own way of doing everything yeah, I, yeah. I haven't seen recently uh more and more i more pistol grips but again every department's different every truck's different so you may yeah. show up one day at your station on a different a different shift or a different truck or something and no pistol grips and then go to different station and all pistol grips so it, it all varies yeah it's true and again they're the equipment's on the truck for a reason, and trust me, it'll get used. I mean, even though there might be something on one of the compartments where you're like, I've never seen that get used. At some point, it's going to be, um, and that's or why it's on there. Using it. might not be on your ship. Yeah, or exactly. Just because you didn't bear witness to it doesn't mean it's never been used. But again, it's there for a reason. Now, we do have our requirements for ladders and, and hose and nozzles and all that, and that's NFPA 1901. That's the apparatus uh, standard. So those things, yeah, NFPA says this, this, and this has to be on your truck regardless. 
And then from there, we kind of branch off. It's a good jumping off point in the NFPA stand. So again, the debate will continue on pistol grip versus no pistol grip. Now, here's my theory, though. If you can learn to use the nozzle and the hose and do good hose management without the pistol grip and you get proficient in that, and then eventually you go to a department that has pistol grips and you use them, but you're proficient in when you didn't have a uh, pistol grip, then I'm good with that. Because, yeah, you can use it for comfort and maneuverability, like Ken said, for the pistol grip. But then if you ever have to fall back on your old way of doing it with when you were trained without the pistol grip, then you hopefully you'll fall back on that. But at least you can have both ways of the road on that one. So I learned I learned with both. I know some people don't like the pistol grip because they look at it as well. They get caught up if you're pulling the attack line and get caught up on a corner or something coming mm-hmm. out of the truck or in a side of a structure, you caught on furniture or corner or something and it just slows you down where uh, no pistol grip, the chances of you getting caught up or Probably just from the bail. Other than that, there's nothing, no handle or anything that you're caught up on. So mm-hmm. I've seen both, but no both, and they still make both, so you're going to get exposed to both. Yeah, so just get, again, get proficient in having both ways of doing it, I'd say, you know, because you don't know what you're going to be facing. Like like Ken said, the best. Your entire department might have pistol grips, or one station might have it, and then you do overtime or shift swap somewhere else, and then that one station you go to, they all have it or don't. So... It's, again, just be proficient in all of it. Whatever tools on the truck, know how to use it all. It's one thing that I see a lot of with, like, especially the new firefighters that are coming out, that they learned it one way in the academy or your department's recruit class, whatever, you know, and that's it. They take it as gospel. They take it at face value, and that's it. They don't feel that they need to know how to use anything else. They're like, nope, I know how to use this nozzle, and that's it, and that's all I'm going to use. Okay, well, sorry, we have the other nozzles, too. You need to learn how to use them as well because you might get an officer in there that says, I want to use a fog nozzle today. I want to use a smooth board next shift. You know, you don't know. Or tactically, they might say, you know what, we're doing a fog or we're doing a smooth board because this is the kind of fire we have. It just depends. So you need to be proficient in both. Now is not the time at a fire to say, hey, Cap, I don't know how to use this. Can you help me? He's He or she has so much more on their plate. They have to do a 360. They have to do their arrival report, then their 360. They got to start thinking tactically, Where are we? what are we doing here? Where am I going to be in five, 10 minutes from now? That's the thought process of an officer. They don't have time to sit there. Oh, let me show you how to work this nozzle and manage the hose. Sorry, you should already know how to do that. So yeah, if it's unfamiliar, definitely take time in the morning when you get there to go over it. But people sometimes tend to forget just because you see a fire truck doesn't mean that fire truck is exactly the same. Uh, every zone has got, or every truck for every zone is kind of geared lots of times for that zone. So you may have an, a truck in a certain area that has a large industrial area. Well, they're going to be geared more for that industrial area compared to. Uh, a residential area or a rural area or whatnot. So if you get in unfamiliar surroundings, just, you know, take your time and familiarize yourself with everything and, and be ready because you don't ever want to get caught with your pants down. So so be proficient. And if it's on the truck and it's department issued, you're responsible for it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've worked with some officers over the years and I drove for um, some of these officers and they were, they never really told me Hey, I want you to do this on this type of call. I want you to know it was mainly talk to their, their rescue crew or their firefighter. But I would overhear these officers tell, okay, if we have a car fire, I want you to do this, that, and the other. I want you to approach it from this angle, all this kind of thing. Okay, great. If we have a residential fire that's at least under 2,000 square feet, I want like it was very, very specific. And it was like, well, what if we go to a house that's 2,001 square feet? What are we doing here? You know what I mean? Is it change the tactic? Do we go vapor lock at that point and we don't we don't function and it's yeah. like you know we're tripping over our own um, our own two right feet or whatever? So I've worked with officers that were very very specific and they were sometimes I would say borderline micromanaged. But when I would upgrade as an officer myself, I would say this is what I expect today. Do your thing and just watch each other's back. If you see something, tell me because I might have missed it or bring it up and I might have already considered it and we're gonna going to move on because I've already got the tactic going. But other than that, I just said, you're all professionals. You're all professional firefighters. You're all adults. So have a good shift and we'll deal with it mm-hmm. one step at a time as it comes. Yeah. I never really was specific on what I wanted. There were certain things I was, I was like if we ran a car accident, for example, I know we're going to get off topic from nozzles. If we ran a car accident, for example, I would tell the firefighter, help me do the, uh, I'll do the outer circle. You do the inner, secure the vehicles. Tell me how many patients we have while the rescue crew, which down here in Florida, the rescue is an ambulance, by the way. They'll do the EMS, but you're the firefighter, so I need you to do firefighting stuff, which is securing the vehicle, inner circle, notice any hazards, tell me about it. I'm running command. I'm getting, do I need more resources? Can I handle with what I have? 
And then from there, if we are good, we don't have to extricate, we don't have any hazards, then my firefighter and my driver can go help the rescue with patient care. But I need you to be firefighters first, and then we can be EMS after, okay? That's how I would, would run it. But, I mean, what do you think on that? Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. Uh, sometimes you do have to dictate your leadership skills to the to your crew members with time on experience and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, pretty much, uh, I guess when it does boil down to it, we are firefighters first and then EMS second. So, yeah. EMS top again. Yeah, I know. It's going to keep coming. Uh, every episode, I know for, I foresee it in the future for every episode, we're going to be talking something yeah. EMS related, but you yeah. know what though? It's what we know. It's what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, we do run fire calls and we're, we're Ken and I work in the area. We run quite a bit of fire calls, but we also run a ton more EMS calls. So you might have to run like 200 EMS calls before you get one or two fires, you know, give or take. I mean, I'm just saying it depends on the area you're in, but it just, EMS is here. And, but we want to be proficient in the firefighting side of it too. Now, how, how much like company training do you recommend with nozzles and hose and all that? Oh, just all the time. I mean, unfortunately we're at a busy station, so Mm -hmm. we just don't, we don't have the time to really do, but uh, we have scheduled training where we can go out of service and whatnot and we review it. And I'm pretty fortunate. We have a relatively senior crew, so they have quite a bit of experience but oh, that's good i mean it's just something kind of like you use it or lose it type type attitude so you know we have a dry run of power long before we have a fire or something go out there pull a line you know doesn't take long to pull a line unload it load it and hey everybody cool everybody got it you know just kind of hands-on review it and that's it because 30 minutes of training is better than no training absolutely absolutely now are you a proponent of if just say you go on and, and one thing about tax surveys is whether you are like, Hey, we did everything we needed to do around the station. We're not that busy yet. Let's go drive around here. I picked this one building in our zone mm-hmm. or we run an EMS call and the ambulance takes the uh, patient away to the hospital, but the engine or the ladder company who ran the call with the ambulance stays on scene and says, Hey, let's walk around here. It's a commercial building. If we have a fire in this side of the building, I would want to do this, that, and the other. What do you think? Do yeah, you, no, do we, that we, do that, we do that uh, quite a bit. Good. Um, drive around, look at the FDCs and the panels and whatnot. Or if it's a new building or a remodeled building, we'll go there, we'll check it out, get inside when we can. And, mm-hmm. you know, really, I think that might come with experience, too. Every time you're driving, you're always looking for certain things. But, yeah, we definitely do that. We take advantage of, of things like that when we can. Uh, so we're familiar with our zone. That's huge. That that's very important too. And your your uh, department, you don't rotate stations, do you? You're bidded. There. Yeah, we have a bid. So okay. after the bid, if somebody chooses to leave and they have the, the seniority to do it, they'll leave. But um, so we you do have, have lifetime bids. Um. Yeah, depending on how where you fall in the pecking order. Yeah. You may or may not. There's some people that yeah haven't really done a lot of moving in their entire career. Oh, so. Okay. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like Ken said, I mean, if you're a lifetime bid department kind of example, you should know your zone like the back of your hand. You should know the layout of most of the structures there. And remember, every structure is going to be different. I mean, don't don't forget, they kind of keep us on the back burner. They don't notify us like, hey, by the way, we added a wall here and another set of offices. They don't tell you that normally. Mm-hmm. You have to find that out when you actually run a call there or if you just happen to do like a, hey, we're going to do a company tax survey today, and then we're going to figure out what our tactics are if we have this kind of call here, what nozzles we want to pull, what what hose line we're going to pull, that kind of thing. If, so If we see something major, um, normally we do we try to communicate it through all three shifts, through email or something. So oh, that's good. All the information gets out, even though that particular crew might have not been there. Mm-hmm. At least they have some idea or the notification of, of a change or a new structure or something, or hazard. Or yeah, not. that's good. That's smart. I mean, that's proactive in the fire service. And that's one thing that I'm big on. I know Ken is, and a lot of my other buddies that, you know, I work with and teach with, they're all big on that too. So being proactive. Uh, now back to the um, nozzle talk. The other thing that we kind of talked about before we started recording was the UL study in December, 2017 about air entrainment and the theory of fog nozzles will push fire. Well, these studies that are out there, and it's not just UL, there's been quite a few other ones that are out there. It's been proven that fire cannot be pushed with a fog nozzle. It may abruptly seem like it does, 
And then that water droplets hit it and it darkens it down. Steam conversion occurs and therefore fire is never pushed. So, I mean, what do you think on that? I mean, I, I remember hearing in Fire Academy. Push the fire out. The, you, you put know. throughout the structure and all that, you know. I mean, I guess if you, you can push the fire, um, I don't necessarily want to say push. Maybe, I don't know if redirection is the same as push, but you're preventing the <laughs> fire from spreading, I guess, when you say push. Uh, I, I I understand why people think the fog, the fog nozzle can push the fire out the door or out the window. I, I don't know. I mean, I think ultimately our goal is to put the fire out, not necessarily to push it or right. prevent it from spreading to other areas. So I know there's a lot of studies that, that says it can't do it. Honestly, I'm not I'm not 100% sure on that. I, I don't know if I have a real opinion on that, Rob. Yeah. I, well, my thing is, though, I wonder, though, how that rumor mill, we'll call it rumor mill, okay, mm-hmm. Um is remember back in the day when I'm sure when you first started and when I first started in the fire service, the theory was we go to a fire, the hose team's going to push into the structure, and then we're going to run around and break all the windows on the outside. Yeah. So do you think that that theory of like, oh my gosh, at that abrupt time that the nozzle was open with the fog, for example, and then they were like pushing the fire throughout the structure, the flow path, because the windows were broken mm-hmm. by the outside vent team, might have given that false sense of, oh my gosh, the fog nozzle pushes fire. It's possible. Again, I, you, like you said, I kind of, I, you know, I kind of agree. You, you really can't physically move a fire from point A to point B. Yeah. So, especially with water, because yeah, what's water, water doing? It's cooling. Well, it. Yeah. You're ultimately, <laughs> again, you're ultimately pushing the fire out, or you're, I guess, when they say push, you're kind of containing it or pushing it out. The water is pushing the fire, or pushing maybe pushing the heat. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere. Um, to the opposite way where you are, but I haven't been able yet to take put the fire from one room to the other by You haven't been able to create that? No, I, I'm still working on it. If I do, I'll let you know. Okay. So get a uh, helmet cam and yeah, let me see it. I don't know if that's a good word, good, uh, good choice of words to use. So. Yeah. It, it's just one thing, and in the air entrainment theory of hey, that air that the if you have it like on a it's not like a straight stream with the fog, it's that wide fog that they're talking about more not really the narrow i don't think in my opinion i don't think it's the narrow it's more the like oh i accidentally opened it up because i didn't check my nozzle in the morning or i got so panicked had it full wide and here we go and we're moving the fire throughout the structure i think uh, it's a combination of back in the day the ventilation occurring where we broke all the windows out back in the old days mm-hmm. because we didn't i mean obviously flow path i think was a theory but now that all like nist and ul and they've done all these studies of showing flow path when you have mm-hmm. one window broken compared to the whole house being broken out. Path of least resistance. Smoke yeah. and fire is going to take path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. It's going to go where the oxygen is. That's the flow path. So I think that theory of fog nozzles move fire throughout a structure was at that simultaneous time a window was broken out or windows were broken out and the nozzle team was opening up on the fire. Yeah, I mean, if a room's closed, you're not going to be able to push the fire anyway. It's just going to no. stay there, go out. I mean, it's not going not to be able to push it through a wall. Or anything, no, so. exactly. So it's just kind of like, you know... And then the other thing, too, is think of a um, uh, common attic. Mm-hmm. If you have, like, a commercial building or a, you know, large residential, um, like up north they have the row homes, which have a common attic. You know, they know fire stops. That fire is looking for the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. It's running the attic, and that's why we would do a trench cut, for mm-hmm. example. But it's running the attic to find where can I get out because that fire wants to vent. It wants to auto-vent and start breathing freely through the roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, it's the same kind of concept. It's going on the flow path of where the oxygen is. Where's more of that oxygen that can feed me? So that's how the fire is going to move. But I feel that with the um, the fog nozzle, with the air entrainment kind of studies they've been talking about, it's the same kind of concept of if you're on, like, the 12th floor of a high-rise fire and it's contained, that apartment, well, you want to hydraulically ventilate. Opening up that nozzle, whether it's a smooth bore or a fog, fog, you probably get a little bit more of that air mm-hmm. entrainment to clear the room out quicker. But it's the same kind of theory, I think, where, yeah, that's where we're going to move air out of an open window when we're trying to do hydraulic ventilation, you know, on a, a top floor of a high rise mm-hmm. or a condo, whatever, you know. Um, so I think it's the same kind of concept there. But again, like Ken said, and I completely agree with him, is I haven't been able to create it. I know he hasn't. I'm pretty sure most of the firefighters in his department and mine haven't been able to move fire throughout the structure with a fog nozzle or any kind of nozzle at that. So, I mean, <laughs> one of those things. If any of you have, please write into us on Facebook, message us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> so, uh, anything else you want to add to the um, the nozzle talk? or? No, that's it. Just, if, again, 
kind of a proponent that it's on your truck and it's been issued by the by your fire department, <clears throat> know how to use it. And you're going to see different makes and models uh, yeah. throughout your career when you you know travel from station to station or truck to truck. But be familiar with it. And even though you may only see it two or three times, learn it, and because you never know when you're going to have to use it again. Yeah. And that's really that's really about it. Just just know your equipment and yeah. know there's always more than just one one piece of equipment that does the same job. There's multiple pieces of equipment that can do do the job. So. Yeah, and I agree. And another thing too is to bring up it, whether you're brand new in the fire service or you've been in the fire service for a long time, like Ken and I, still. Go to these conferences because most of these fire conferences, whether it's up in Orlando, um, you know, uh, Daytona, Fort Lauderdale, you know, I think Tampa has one now. Jacksonville, I think, is getting one. We have them all over Florida, but they're all over the country, too, like FDIC, things like that. Go to them because they have training on nozzles, hose management, what nozzle works better for this, what nozzle works better for that. And again, it's just a matter of you're exposing yourself to more things. And then you kind of pick and choose like and form your own personality, if you will, as a firefighter or an officer or a driver on, oh, well, I have this background and knowledge of this nozzle. I'm going to use it on this fire. Or, hey, I learned this the other day. Let's use it this way. It's just a matter. It's just more reference that you can pull from when you're on a fire or in a, in a, on a call. And whether you actually get to use that knowledge on a fire, if anything, bring it back to the department or the station and talk to the officer or whoever and do company training on it. Yeah. Don't don't just say, oh, I have the information. I'm not sharing it. If you do that, I mean, you're going against everything that the fire service is about. We're here about sharing information. We're here about training. We're here about protecting each other and, you know, ultimately saving each other it with, from knowledge that you share with people. So make sure that you're not hoarding it, basically. Share it with uh, the crew and go out and actually train with it. You know, if you have the equipment on the truck and you learn a new way of doing it from a conference you went to, let's do it. Let's see if it works. It might be something that works so great that your department implements it full time as a main tactic. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, it just the sky's the limit really with it. So again, just, just kind of don't get complacent, no complacency, never stop learning. And YouTube university is another good one. You can go on that and watch other departments throughout the country, throughout the world. That's all I got today. No, that's, that's about it. Stay safe. Yep. Stay safe. Bring Ken back for more episodes in the future. If he's willing to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll be um, definitely hitting some more topics down the road. I think we were going to do definitely a, I want to do a scene size up one. And mm-hmm. whether that's for new company officers or future company officers, or even people that are on a rescue truck that get first on scene, they can do an arrival report. You mm-hmm. know, it's something that we definitely want to touch on because we're going to, like I said, we're going to hit on as many topics as we can. And if you have any ideas for topics, go to Facebook for our fire department university uh, page and you can write into us. But um, like we always say, never stop learning, maintain being a student of the fire service and stay safe out there. We'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.